Section 22 of The Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 18, Part 1 The Wives of Constantius and Julian. When the announcement of Constantine's death had been borne by swift couriers to the distant provinces, and the body in its golden coffin had been transferred to Constantinople, there was a nervous rush of aspiring emperors and empresses to the capital. The unification of the empire under Constantine had cost the state some hundred and fifty thousand of its finest soldiers, who perished in civil warfare while powerful nations pressed against its yielding frontiers. In his later years he had so distributed these provinces, whose unity had been so dearly purchased among his sons and nephews, worthy and unworthy, that dismemberment was certain to follow his death. His eldest son, Constantine, now in his twenty-first year, ruled Gaul and Britain, Constantius the second son, a youth of twenty, was the Caesar of the East. The third son, Constans, aged seventeen, held sway over Italy and Africa. His nephew Dalmatius, also entitled Caesar, controlled Thrace, Macedonia, and Greece, and the younger nephew, Hannibalian, bore the ornate title of King of Kings in Pontus and Cappadocia. The two brothers of Constantine, and the husbands of his two sisters, were not left without a share of the imperial provision. The race to Constantinople after the death of the emperor may be imagined, but the suddenness and horror of the consequent tragedy must have sobered even the most frivolous. Constantius, the second son, was the first to arrive, and to him the conduct of the impressive funeral was entrusted. The members of the family gathered round the marble palace from all quarters of the empire, and the shade of Constantine continued for some months to rule the state, until their conflicting claims should be adjusted. Julius Constantius and Dalmatius, the legitimate heirs of Constantius Chlorus, who had been thrust aside thirty years before by the vigorous son of Minervina, were now men in the prime of life. The younger son of the latter, Hannibalian, the king of kings, strutted in a scarlet and gold mantle, and had married the fiery and ambitious young daughter of the late emperor Constantina. Anastasia, Constantine's sister, brought her husband the patrician Optatus. The partition of power seemed a formidable task, but in the weeks that succeeded Constantine's death, a new and sinister power arose, and its secret designs prepared a ghastly simplification of the problem. Constantius became insensibly the central figure of the drama. A callous youth, with little strength of character, he was selected by the eunuchs and corrupt officers of Constantine's court as a likely instrument of their plans. It was agreed that the interests of these officers and of the sons of Constantine would be best served by a removal of all the other competitors, and a diabolical plot was devised. 
The details are given at length only by the Christian historian Philostorgius of the next century, and are regarded with reserve. But an Arian writer would hardly inculpate an Arian bishop and an Arian monarch without some just ground. His story is that Constantine left a will in which he declared that he had been poisoned by his two half-brothers. The will was given to Bishop Eusebius. When the brothers were eager to see the will of Constantine, Eusebius is said to have discovered a fine piece of casuistry. He put the will in the hands of the dead emperor, and covered it with his robes, so that he might, without injury to his delicate conscience, assure the brothers that Constantine had indeed shown him a will, but he had returned it into his hands. The will, or a will, was now produced, and the people and army were assured by their dead ruler that he had been poisoned by his family. The story is regarded with suspicion by most historians. For the reason I have given, and because it is the only plausible explanation of what followed, it seems probable that such a will was produced and published by Constantius. It was probably forged by the palace officials. Whether they and the sons of Constantine used this device or no, they somehow directed the tempestuous anger of the troops upon the older princes and their families, and distinguished their claims in a brutal massacre. Julian cast the blame on Constantius, admitting that he acted under compulsion, and the other fourth-century writers do not differ. Constantius permitted rather than commanded. The corrupt power behind the throne directed the murders, and the sons of Constantine purchased a larger dominion by the blood of their uncles and cousins. The two uncles, seven cousins, and other distinguished men were included in the bloody list. Then the three imperial youths divided the empire between them and departed to their provinces. The wives of the eldest and the youngest of the brothers are unknown to us and the first wife of Constantius is so little known that we may pass rapidly over a number of years. The imperial sisters of Constantine, except Constantia, whom we have considered, enter little in the history of the time. Anastasia disappears after the murder of her husband. Eutropia will presently mingle her blood with that of her insurgent son on the soil of Italy. Constantina, the daughter of Constantine, who had married Hannibalian, and who already bore the title of Augusta, retired into a long widowhood, from which we shall find her emerging later in a monstrous character. Constantius had been married to his cousin Galla in 336. She seems to have been the daughter of Julius Constantius, since Julian says that her father and brother were included in the massacre. Her personality is never outlined for us in the historical writings of the time, and we are left to imagine her shuddering or languishing in the arms that were stained with the blood of her family. She died some time before 350, as Magnentius offered his daughter to Constantius in that year. We have therefore no empress who can engage our attention until 353, 
and may be content with a slight summary of the events which lead on to the appearance of Eusebia and the reappearance of the repulsive Constantina. Three years after the partition of the empire, Constantine and Constans quarreled about their territory. The elder brother led his troops into the dominion of Constans and was slain, and his provinces were added to those of Constans. The character of the youngest son of Constantine was gross and intolerable. He revived the lowest vice of his pagan predecessors, and his open parade of the handsome barbarian youths whom he bought, or attracted to his frivolous court, disgusted his officers. In the beginning of the year 350 they rebelled against him. A banquet was given at Augusta Donum, Autun, to the notables of the town and the officers of the camp, and at a late hour, when the abundant wine had warmed the hearts and obscured the judgment of the diners, the commander of two of the chief legions, Magnentius, was brought before them in a purple robe. Constans awoke from his vices to find that he had lost the throne and the army, and fled toward Spain. He was overtaken and slain, some blood curse seemed to hang over the house of Constantine. Constantius, who had been long occupied in resisting the Persians, now wheeled round his troops and faced the usurper. In the long struggle that followed, there were two incidents of interest for us. Constantina, the imperial widow, was living in restless impotence at the time. Between the rebellious provinces of the west and the loyal provinces of the east was the intermediate district between the Danube and the Greek Sea. Constantina, it is said, instigated the commander of the troops in these regions, Vetranio, to assume the purple. What we shall see of her character presently will dispose us to believe that she meditated a return to power through Vetranio but Constantius astutely disarmed and exiled him, and accepted her explanation that she had acted with the pure aim of resisting the advance of the western usurper. Constantine's sister Eutropia also appears in the struggle. Her son Nepotian assumed the purple at Rome, and led out a motley army to attack Magnentius. They were quickly annihilated, and mother and son, two of the few remaining members of Constantine's family, were slain. The interest of the student of the time is divided between the clash of armies and the not wholly bloodless conflicts of theologies. We are concerned with neither, and need only observe that Constantius defeated Magnentius after a long and costly struggle in one battle fifty-four thousand Roman soldiers perished in civil warfare, and reunited the empire under his sole dominion. The young empress of the defeated Magnentius retired into widowhood, and will be restored to us in the next chapter. In the meantime, Constantina has returned to the field, and her imperial adventures call for our notice. Two children, the sons of Julius Constantius, had survived the massacre at Constantinople. Gallus was in his twelfth year, Julian in his sixth. They were hidden until the fury of the soldiers had abated, and then their tender age induced the murderers to overlook them. 
The jealous eye of Constantius fell on them when they approached manhood, and they were confined in a fortress or ancient palace in Cappadocia. In the solitude of Messalum, no company was offered them but that of slaves and soldiers. Julian, in whose mind the seeds of an elevated philosophy had taken root, resisted the pressing temptations and devoted the long days to culture. But Gallus, a sensual and ill-balanced youth, adopted the coarse distractions of his spacious jail. After six years, in 351, they were not only set at liberty, but Gallus was amazed to find himself clothed with the dignity of Caesar and married to the emperor's sister, Constantina. Constantius was compelled to leave the east in order to face Magnentius, and he needed a Caesar to rule in his name. The three years' rule of Gallus and Constantina was an imperial scandal. Unscrupulous and unbridled, the daughter of Constantine lives in the literature of the time as a monstrous perversion of womanhood. With her begins the historical work, as we have it, of Ammianus Marcellinus, a retired general, one of the most scrupulous and ample chroniclers of his time. He bursts at once into a vivid denunciation of her vices. She was a mortal Magira, an ogre, swollen with pride and thirsting for human blood. It is unfortunate that Ammianus gives us no personal description of the women of his time. His work contains charming vignettes of the emperors and princes, but he seems never to have looked on the face or figure of their wives. Gallus, he tells us, was a superb youth in figure and stature, his handsome features crowned with soft golden hair, and bearing a look of dignity and authority in spite of his vices. The strain of cruelty and coarseness in him was provoked to excesses by his wife. When his savage conduct had exasperated his subjects, he used to send his spies, in the disguise of beggars, to gather the secret whispers of discontent, and he even stooped to the practice of wandering himself, in disguise, from tavern to tavern, on the well-lit streets of Antioch, to discover his critics. Antioch had been noted for centuries for its freedom of speech, and the prisons and torture chambers of Gallus were busy. Constantina not only encouraged this criminal conduct, but enlarged on it. A woman of vicious character came one day to disclose some plot or pretended plot to her. She rewarded her heavily, and sent the harlot out into the city in the royal chariot to encourage others. An Alexandrian noble distinguished himself by resisting the guilty passion of his mother-in-law. The woman presented Constantina with a pearl necklace, and the noble was put to death. We need not prolong the disgusting narrative. Flavia Julia Constantina, a beautiful and able woman, who can scarcely have passed her thirtieth year, was one of the worst empresses in the imperial gallery. One can but suggest, in some attenuation of her guilt, that the murder of her husband by her brother when she was a young girl in her early teens, and the fourteen years of young widowhood that followed, had provoked the worst elements of her nature. 
As long as Constantius was occupied with the struggle against Magnentius, he overlooked the excesses of his Caesar and his sister in the east. His opponent, Magnentius, was not so compliant, though he wasted no legions in an effort to dethrone him. He sent a soldier to assassinate Gallus and seduce the troops. As the man resided, however, in a tavern near Antioch, he became less cautious over his cups, and boasted to his associates of his mission. The old woman who kept the tavern seemed too far removed from politics to be taken into account, but she promptly denounced her guest at the palace, and he was put to death. Then Magnentius fell and committed suicide, and Constantius turned to consider the scandalous conduct of his viceroy and his sister. Constantius proceeded, as he usually did whenever it was possible, by craft instead of force. The prefect of the East had been slain by the people of Antioch, with the guilty connivance of Gallus, and a new prefect named Domitian was sent to Antioch, together with the prefect of the palace, Montius. Domitian had orders to secure, by the most tactful and seductive means, that Gallus should visit Italy, and walk into the pit dug for him. He was, however, a sturdy officer, more sensible of the just substance than the form of his instructions. Gallus and Constantina were at once insulted because, on the day of his arrival, he drove insolently past the gate of the palace and went straight to his villa. They then condescended to invite him to the palace. In the presence of the hated rulers, he laid aside all pretense of diplomacy and roughly ordered the Caesar to proceed at once to Italy, or incur the just resentment of the emperor. Gallus, stung by his insolence, at once gave the prefect into the custody of the soldiers. Montius, who was present, and who also had lost all feeling for diplomacy in the passionate encounter, remonstrated with Gallus, adding the taunt that a man who had no power to dismiss one of his magistrates had no power to imprison a prefect of the East. We are assured by Philostorgius that Constantina flew at the official, dragged him from the tribunal, and pushed him into the hands of the guard. We may prefer the more sober version of Ammianus. Gallus impetuously called upon the troops and the people of Antioch to defend their ruler, and they responded with surprising alacrity. The distinguished officers of Constantius were bound hand and foot, dragged through the streets until the last spark of life was extinct, and then flung into the river. Still, Constantius hesitated to enter upon a civil war with the East, and the unscrupulous cunning which dictated his policy discovered an alternative procedure. First, the commander of the cavalry in the east was summoned to Milan, that the danger of a rising might be lessened. Then, in a series of letters, couched in the most friendly and mendacious terms, were sent to the Caesar. Constantius was eager to see his beloved sister once more, and to confer with his Caesar. For some time they resisted the invitation, but at length Constantina, less apprehensive of personal injury, set out for Italy. She died on the journey at Conum in Bithynia of fever, 
and her remains were buried at Rome. She was still in her early thirties at the time of her death. The single deed that is recorded in praise of her is that she and Gallus planted a Christian church in the dissolute grove of Daphne, and drew the austerity of the new faith upon that region of sensuous superstition and sensual license. Her share in that act of piety may be put in the scale against her avarice, cruelty, selfishness, and unbridled temper. The fate of her husband may be briefly recorded. Lured at length by the deceitful professions of Constantius, he set out for Milan with his princely retinue. As soon as he reached Europe, the retinue was brushed aside, and he discovered himself a captive. When the little party arrived in Pannonia, he was stripped of the purple and conducted to the remote prison at Pola, where Crispus had been executed. There he was tried by a eunuch of Constantius's court, and within a few days a breathless courtier, he had ridden several horses to death, rushed into the presence of Constantius with the shoes of the slain Caesar. The empire was reunited under Constantius at a cost of the deaths of twenty princes and princesses of his house, and their dependents, and fifty thousand soldiers, and the eunuchs and courtiers filled the palace at Milan with the incense they offered to the young conqueror. Constantius had, meantime, married again, and a more worthy and commanding empress engages our attention. Toward the close of his struggle with Magnentius in the year 352, or the beginning of 353, the emperor married a Macedonian lady, Aurelia Eusebia, of remarkable beauty, no little ability, and dignified personality. Her father and brother had had consular rank in their province. Her mother had been distinguished for the propriety of her conduct and the careful rearing of her children after the death of her husband. The language in which the Emperor Julian describes her is enhanced by gratitude and enjoys the license of a panegyric. Some would say that it is warmed by a more tender sentiment. But Ammianus, who also knew her, pronounces that the beauty of her character was not less splendid than that of her form, and beyond a peevish complaint of a later writer that she did not confine herself to the proper and restricted sphere of a woman, she maintains her high repute among the conflicting writers of the time. The one grave imputation which Ammiana seems to find quite consistent with his superlative praise of her we will consider later. End of section 22